Now this morning, will you turn back with me to Revelation? Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22, just some verses. Our subject this morning is the coming Lord, the coming Lord. So first of all, in Revelation chapter 1, just one verse, verse 7. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. The Apostle John writes and he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then if you'll turn to chapter 22, the last chapter of the book of Revelation, last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, and three verses, first of all, verse 7, Revelation 22, verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, and then if you go down to verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then final verse, verse 20. He, that's Jesus, who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you that we have come as your people this morning to worship, to hear your word. And we know, Father, that it is true that in the preaching of the word of God is the word of God to be heard. We pray that we might all this morning hear what you have to say to us. And so we ask, gracious God, that we might understand and comprehend your word, the glorious truth of Jesus, the coming Lord, who is coming again for his people. So we commit ourselves to you now and ask your rich blessing. May the Holy Spirit help us to understand your word and to profit from it. May we all have eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious gospel found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we commit ourselves to you now and ask your blessing upon the proclamation, the preaching of the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You might remember back in the first book in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16, when we have that great glorious promise, evangelical promise that is made, at the same time, God pronounces a judgment upon the serpent. He pronounces a cursing upon the serpent, and we all recognize and know that the serpent is none other than the evil one, Satan, the devil. In fact, in Revelation, in this book, in chapter 12 and verse 9, the Apostle John writes that the devil is called the great dragon. He is the ancient serpent. He is the one called devil and Satan, who is the deceiver of all the earth. And then... He makes that great statement in Revelation 12. He has been thrown down. 
he has been cast down. And so we realize that Satan has been defeated, that he has been defeated by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that to be true from the cross. And so in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent receives a cursing from God, a judgment upon him. In fact, we recognize from what Genesis tells us that even the animal itself, the snake, the serpent, that crawls on the ground was cursed to actually do that, to crawl crawl on its belly for the remainder of its days and to eat dust and so on. At the same time, we recognize that Satan, who indwelt the snake, the serpent in the garden, received a judgment from God, and the judgment that God brought upon the serpent, upon the evil one himself, was to be a never-ending, failed attempting to destroy the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman, of course, being primarily none other than our Lord Jesus Christ and none other than the church, the bride of Christ himself. And so Satan, of course, is destined to never win. His enmity will always be against Christ and will always be against the church and will always be against every Christian. But the glorious thing about Genesis chapter 3 and the rest of the Bible as we read it and know it to say is that Satan can never win and will never win. But on the other side of that is the the glorious truth that Jesus always wins and Jesus can never lose. And if that's true about Jesus, it's also true about His people. Even though we as Christians may suffer for our faith, we may be persecuted, we may be hounded to death, we may even die, give our lives, yet in our giving of our lives, we truly live. We never lose because of King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, it is destined for Him, according to Genesis 3.15, that He would step on the serpent's head, and the serpent would simply bruise the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Mr. Spurgeon says. He says that Satan at his greatest is nothing more than a heel nibbler. A heel nibbler. That's all he can do. And yet many Christians are absolutely fearful, are they not, of the evil one of what's happening in the world, of what they see going on all around them. Things are falling to pieces. There is catastrophe everywhere. There is disease. There is war. There is famine. There are earthquakes. There are all these troubles that have come upon the world, all which, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself foretold that such things would come upon the world. And yet we are greatly surprised by them, greatly affected by them. But here in the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, we discover that though Satan makes many attempts to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, woman, and all of his descendants, those who believe in him, he will never win. Because Jesus crushes his head at the cross, and Satan can only nibble at the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come and read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is not about defeat. The book of Revelation is all about victory. And we must remember that John the Apostle has been given this task from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself to write this revelation to the seven churches 
of Asia Minor. Those seven churches were not far from each other in distance. They were on a postal route. So you could go to Ephesus and then go on all the way around and reach all the seven churches. They were near each other. They weren't separated by great distances. And to those seven churches, our Lord Jesus gives to the Apostle John this great glorious vision of Himself and of the future and of what it might mean and would mean for those seven churches as He writes to them. And of course, we discover when we read the book of Revelation that our Lord Jesus Christ is nothing less than the Lord of creation. Not only is He Lord of creation, Lord of the cosmos, of everything. All authorities, principalities, rulers, powers are subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we discover that He's Lord of the church, His bride, His people those who are redeemed according to the book of Revelation by the blood of the Lamb. And so this, this book is truly the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is all about Christ. And it is concerning Jesus that John has come to appreciate the many things that he has shown by the Lord Jesus Himself. For example, John himself in the very first chapter in verses 17, 18 and so on receives those comforting words from Jesus as he is overcome by the vision of the Son of Man. And as he is in terror, Jesus comes to him and says, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That is a victor, and that is victory, isn't it? That is someone who says, I'm there at the beginning, I'm there at the end, and everything in between is mine. And not only that, but I even died, and I came to life, and I live forevermore. And the entrance into death and the entrance into Hades is in my authority, is mine. All authority, Jesus said in the Great Commission, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And because of that authority, Jesus could say to his disciples, So go and be my witnesses and spread the gospel and teach the nations and baptize them and so on. And we all are the descendants and the recipients of the Great Commission originally given by our Lord Jesus Christ to the disciples. And so as we come to the book of Revelation... John gives us this portrait of Jesus that Jesus gives to John of Himself. That Jesus is the exalted Lord. That Jesus is the transcendent Lord. That He is over all. That though Satan may nibble at the heels of Christ and at the heels of the church, those who belong to Jesus, yet they, or Satan and all of his hosts, can never win. Because Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is the King. And so, with this exalted authority and with this transcendent authority, as we come this morning, we want to understand what is it that Jesus is saying to the seven churches when He utters simple words like, Behold, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. There's no question if you read Revelation that you would come away from it saying Jesus reigns. He is the reigning King. But there's also this portrait, isn't there? This picture of Jesus 
that He is the coming Lord. Not just the reigning King, but someone who is Lord, who is transcendent, who is supreme, who is sovereign, who says, I am coming. I am coming soon. And so, this book of Revelation shows us Jesus as the one who is to come. As the Lord who is to come. Now you all know when we read our Bibles, we discover that there are two advents connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. These two advents are both of them orthodox doctrine. In other words, you have to believe both of them to even be a Christian. That is, the first advent, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we remember at Christmas time. We remind ourselves that Jesus came into this world, that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. That's the first advent. That's the first uh, coming of our Lord Jesus. But the Bible speaks to us, doesn't it, just as eloquently of that second coming, that second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. When it will not be incarnation, but it will be consummation. When the Lord Jesus comes in power and in great glory to deliver His people, to save them, and to rule the nations, as we read, with a rod of iron. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. What is significant about both the advents of Jesus is that He comes in both advents from heaven. He comes from glory. He leaves heaven and He comes to this earth. You remember how... uh, after Jesus had led the disciples out to Bethany and He was going to be taken up in His ascension back into glory, that He he blessed them and then He was going up into the air with the clouds and the disciples are, are standing there looking at them when the angel says to them, You men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into heaven, gazing up into heaven? This Same Jesus, I think, as the King James says. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. So as Jesus ascends to His exalted position of glory at the right hand of the Majesty on high, the the message is to uh, the disciples that the Lord Jesus whom they saw leave is the same Lord Jesus Christ who is going to come again. And here, when we read the last chapter of Revelation, in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20, what does Jesus say in that concluding chapter? Behold, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. Back in the first chapter, in verse 7, it says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him. And there will be those who mourn because they pierced Him. But He is coming, it says, with the cloud, the clouds of heaven. There are three things that I want you to notice this morning from these verses that we have before us. First of all, there is a consideration. The little word, behold. The consideration. Secondly, there is an affirmation. I am coming. I am coming. And finally, there is a confirmation soon. Behold, I am coming soon. When you look at the word behold, that is telling us the what. When you look at I am coming, the who. When you see the word soon, the when. 
And then when you look at this verse, like verse 7 in Revelation chapter 1, and it says, with the clouds, now we know how. We know who is coming. We know what and when and the how with the clouds. And when you read Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, we know the why I am bringing my recompense or my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. So let's begin then with this consideration. Behold. Do you know the word, the little word, behold, occurs 27 times in the book of Revelation? That's one for every chapter. There's 22 chapters. So 27 times you will come across this little word, behold. It's the same word every time. It's the Greek word, idu. Behold. The word is what we call an interjection. It's designed to arrest your attention. So for example, you read about it in the Old Testament where behold is used to express surprise, for example. So you remember how Jacob expressed surprise in Genesis 29. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. He was surprised, wasn't he? Or about Moses. The word behold is used in that burning bush experience in Exodus chapter 3 and it expresses awe and fear from Moses. Behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will stop and see what this... He was arrested, and he was in fear of that demonstration, the burning bush. So the main purpose, even, primarily even in the Old Testament, of that little word, behold, is to draw your attention to something. To get you to stop and wait a moment and see what it is that you are to look at and to understand. When you come to the New Testament, that little word behold is the word idu, which as I said, idu is derived from the word to see or to look. So I might say to you if I met you and was, was concerned about something, I might say to you, now see here, right? Or look at this. That, that, the, the word behold is just like that. It stops you in your tracks and it says pay attention, listen, see, look. Jesus loved to use that word. For instance, behold, a sower went out to sow seed. Right? Matthew chapter 13. Or, behold, the Father says, My servant, my beloved Son, whom I have chosen. Behold, stop, see, listen, look, scrutinize. So, the word behold invites all of us this morning where we are when we read the text of Revelation to consider something, to listen up. So when Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. You need to stop. And you need to think. And you need to look and see what does that mean for me. And that's what Jesus is saying to the seven churches. Stop. Consider what I'm about to say. Behold, I am coming soon. So when Jesus uses it in the, the book of Revelation, He is pointing out something that is significant. Something that is vital and crucial and important. And twice in the last chapter, Behold, I am coming soon. Repetition is important, isn't it? I mean, so often I find with my own memory that I forget a lot more easy, easily than I have done in the past. 
I assume that's because of age and deficiency, etc., etc. But you've experienced the same, right? You find yourself struggling to remember. And what is it that helps us remember but repetition? And that is why memory work is amongst the most hardest work you will ever engage in because you find that after repeating and repeating and repeating, you still forget. And you have to go back and repeat and repeat, right? So when Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. And then a few verses later, look, behold, I'm coming soon. It's because you might have forgotten how easy it is we forget that Jesus is coming soon. The entire world according to the Bible, should have been looking for and expecting the advent of Jesus because the Old Testament told that, the incarnation. And yet, how does Jesus come to a small village? Uh, I mean, to to Jerusalem, I mean, a small village, Bethlehem, and then, of course, uh, born to Joseph and Mary, insignificant people. Who are they? He came like that. Yet, Yet, all of the Old Testament is saying He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Look for Him. Look for Him. Only the wise men who are looking at the, the heavens and considering the stars and their trajectory see that, that abnormality, that one star that takes them to Bethlehem. When Jesus comes again, and He is coming again, because He said, I am coming, right? When He comes, knowing that He comes, will I be ready? Not only will I be ready, but am I preparing my life today for the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the significant thing is that when Jesus concludes the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 22, He concludes it with this incredible statement three times, I am coming soon. So stop, listen to me, and heed what I say, and live your life in the light of my soon coming. So, this little word is important, isn't it? This interjection. Behold. Stop. Why? I am coming soon, Jesus says. So pay attention. That's what I must consider. That's what you must consider. And what is it that I am to consider? Well, I'm to consider I am coming. I am coming, Jesus says. I'm coming. So let's look at the affirmation secondly. There is this, this... consideration, there is this affirmation. May I suggest to you that Jesus affirms that He is coming personally, and Jesus affirms that He is coming particularly. He says, I. Nobody else. I, Jesus. I alone. I, Jesus, am coming soon. And notice how the Lord describes Himself, by the way, in chapter 22 and verse 13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Behold, I am coming soon. Who is coming? The one who is, describes himself as the very beginning, the very end, everything in between, this Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is saying, look, I have the first word about everything. I have the final word about everything. In other words, I have the first word about salvation and I have the last word about judgment. Because I'm coming. I'm coming soon. What is it that is so precious to us about our salvation? It is secure, isn't it? It's safe. It's yours. It's mine. It's eternal life. I have it. Can't lose it, right? Can't 
lose this salvation, so it is mine. But the Bible in the advents of the Lord Jesus is not just concerned with the salvation that Jesus brings, but with the judgment that Jesus brings. And judgment, according to the Bible, is certain, is definite. If my salvation is certain, so too is my is judgment that is to come. Or, this is how Jesus put it, for example, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 5, and verse... 27 through 29. Jesus said, look, I've been given authority to execute judgment. Why? Because I'm the Son of Man. And then Jesus said these words. He says, do not marvel, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So what is Jesus saying? Look, when the Son of Man comes, something's going to happen. There's going to be a resurrection, and it's going to be twofold. There's going to be a resurrection to life, and there's going to be a resurrection to judgment. And so, when Jesus comes, there's going to be this mass resurrection of all the dead. The dead shall rise. But some will experience life and salvation, and others will experience death and judgment and the wrath of God. And what do we learn from that? from this coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all life and all death is in the hands of the one who says, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. There is no one else. I am coming soon. I'm coming to save my people and I'm coming to judge the world. And the great confessions of the faith and the catechisms of the church, they point out that in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what He does. He comes to save His people finally, and He comes to deliver His judgment upon an unbelieving world. So, when Jesus says, I am coming, it is a promise, isn't it? That's what Jesus means. I am coming. And I'm coming soon. It's a fixed promise. It's a certain promise, Jesus says. It's a promise for every Christian. How do I know that? Because Jesus told His disciples that He was going away, and if I go, He said, and if I prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to Myself, so that you can be where I am. Meaning, you're alone, but I'm coming to you, and I'm going to take you to Myself, and we'll be together forever and ever and ever. What a promise to disciples who had no idea that that very night Jesus would be handed over and would be crucified in the morning. And yet Jesus says, all authority has been handed over to me by my Father. So Jesus is coming for His people. That's the teaching of the Word of God. That's the teaching of the Bible. And He says, with confirming words in that final verse in Revelation 22 and verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Nothing stands in my way. Nothing prevents me. I am coming soon. So the testimony of Jesus is surely a word of assurance, isn't it, to us? Surely, not just behold, but surely, I am coming soon. A word of assurance, not just about resurrection, but about reward or recompense, right? That's why Jesus is coming. So for those who would remain faithful to Him, the believers, He promises all the blessings of God's 
salvation. And for those who refuse Him, the unbeliever, He promises and assures them the severity of His judgment and His wrath. You see how glorious salvation is? We're saved from the wrath to come. We're delivered from judgment and wrath. Jesus, when He talks about this recompense in verse 12, or verse 13, verse 12 of Revelation 22, is not saying that you are saved by your good works. Because we all know that salvation uh, is never by works. We can never be justified by works. We're only justified by, by faith. And so, our Lord Jesus is simply pointing out that works are the things that accompany salvation, that are the evidence of salvation, the fruit of salvation. And that is why it's important for a Christian to pay attention to what they do, to how they live, and so on. And so, this affirmation by the Lord Jesus about His coming is personal. It's for me, it's for you, it's for His people, and it's particular He will come to save us. He will come to do something. He will come to bring in salvation at the end for His people. And at the same time, He affirms that He will judge the unbelievers because there will be this resurrection, this general resurrection of those to life and those to judgment. But will you notice in this first chapter now, in verse 7, that the coming of the Lord Jesus is visible, isn't it? And individual. This is how He is coming. With the clouds. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him. Now it's not incumbent upon me to tell you how every eye will see Him. Except that Scripture says, every eye will see Him. And so, of course, we believe what the Scriptures say. Even those who pierced Him. And they will all tribes of the earth will wail, mourn, on account of him. But just notice these things visible and individual. Every eye will see him. And how is he coming? He says he is coming with the clouds. Now, you know, this is a famous verse in Revelation 1 7 because it is a combination of two Old Testament verses. The first one, and I want you to go with me, is Daniel chapter 7. So turn back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. So, Revelation 1, verse 7, is derived from this first Old Testament text, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. So, here's Daniel, and he receives a vision in the night. And Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So we know that this Son of Man is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Ancient of Days is none other than God the Father. So with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom." that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him, and His dominion, that's the Son of Man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So notice, behold, He is coming with the clouds of heaven in Revelation 1, Daniel 7, 13, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. Now what is Daniel 7 about? 
Daniel 7 is simply about the enthronement of the Son of Man over the nations. The dominion that He is given, the authority and the power over all nations, is handed over to Him. That's the first thing that we find. And then if you'll go to Zechariah, so still in the Old Testament, here's the second text. Zechariah chapter 12, so right before Malachi, last book in the Bible. And Zechariah chapter 12, and I'll read from verse 10. <clears throat> so you'll recognize from Revelation 1. So Zechariah 12 verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. By the way, this is God speaking. When they look on me whom they have pierced, right? Verse 11, on that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, which is just simply a testimony to the kingship and the priestly line that we have, and of course Jesus is king and priest and prophet, and the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. Just an explanation of the mourning that comes as a result of piercing the Son of Man. But look at verse 13. On that day, same day, same time frame, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from uncleanness. And that text lies behind what we have in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. What is Zechariah 12 about? Zechariah 12 is simply about an end time victory of Israel over the nations which includes their repentance. And I might dare say it's the fulfilling of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 ultimately. So for John in Revelation 1.7, what is he saying? Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He sees Jesus then as the exalted, enthroned Lord who is going to come visibly on the clouds. Why? To receive a repenting people, the true Israel. It's a visible coming. It's an individual coming. Every eye see him, even those who pierced him will mourn. So John is just expressing... Uh, the anticipation and the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 12. Jesus has received His kingdom from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And now we discover in the book of Revelation, He rules and He reigns as Lord of lords and King of kings. And He provides salvation and He promises judgment in these last days that are upon us as a result of His first coming, His death, His burial, His resurrection and His ascension and exaltation to the Father's right hand. When He comes, He brings everything to a final end. And every child of God, every Christian this morning, longs 
for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only longs for the coming of Jesus, but looks for the coming of Jesus. Surely that's how we should be as Christians. doesn't matter if you're five years old or 95 years old. It's the same Lord Jesus who is coming. We must look for Him and we ought to long for Him. So when will He fulfill I am coming? This affirmation that He makes. And that brings us thirdly to this confirmation in Revelation 22, 7, 12, and verse 20, when Jesus says, I am coming soon. When are you coming, Jesus? Behold, I am coming soon. That word, soon, is very similar to the noun form in chapter 1, verse 1, the things that must soon take place. Here it is, the adverb form, behold, I am coming soon. I'm coming with speed. I'm coming without delay. It's the idea of suddenness. That when I come, I'm coming and I won't be expected when I come. And what the Lord is directing all of His people to is the idea of being expectant. Of expecting Him. Back in Revelation 16, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming like a thief. You recognize that phrase? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. This is what Paul meant, surely, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Same chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So Jesus says, when I come, it's the same as the day of the Lord coming. It'll come like a thief. What does that phrase mean, like a thief? Nobody's prepared really for the thief. They come when you least expect them. So it speaks about being unprepared, about not expecting. It speaks about not being ready. But Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. I want you to always be ready. I want you to always be expectant when I come. Isn't that the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25? Five wise virgins, five foolish virgins, and the whole story is about being prepared, isn't it? The five wise have oil, extra oil, for when the bridegroom arrives and comes... And they go in because they're ready. And those foolish virgins who ran out of oil have had to go and buy oil. And while they were buying the oil, the bridegroom came and he shut the door. And when they got back, they knocked on the door, Lord, Lord, open to us. I hold, I never knew you. Who are you? Not prepared, right? And Paul told Titus in chapter 2 and verse 13 when he says that in this present age, Paul says to Titus, we are waiting or we are looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you looking? Am I looking? Are we waiting with an expectant waiting or an act of expectancy? Isn't that what uh, Paul said to the Philippians, the church in chapter 3 and verse 20? We await the Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why am I waiting from heaven for the Lord Jesus Christ to transform my lowly body to be like unto His own glorious body? That's resurrection. So I know that when Jesus comes, 
He's coming to raise the dead and he's coming to save his people and I must be ready and I must be prepared and I must be actively looking for him, longing for his coming. And this last book in the Bible stresses these kinds of things to us. But you know, having said all that, you might have forgotten that this book of Revelation is written to seven churches primarily. Yes, it applies to every Christian, to every church, but primarily this is for the seven churches. So I want to show you what Jesus says to these churches. So the first one is, let's go back to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 of Revelation. First of all, verse 4 and 5, this is to the church at Ephesus. So Jesus says, after admiring their bearing up and handling themselves and being faithful, he says, but I have this against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love that you had at the first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Notice, Unless you repent, I will come to you. Now go down to verse 14, church at Pergamum. Jesus says to the the church at Pergamum, verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Which is the picture from chapter 1, right? The vision of the Son of Man with the sword, the word from his mouth. Then go down to chapter, sorry, same chapter, verse 24, Thyatira. So verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Until I come. And then if you turn over to chapter 3, to the church at Sardis, and look at verse 3. Now the church at Sardis is really struggling. Okay, They have a reputation of being alive, but Jesus says you're dead. So wake up, verse 2, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And then if you go down to Philadelphia, verse 11, Philadelphia is a faithful church, like Smyrna. And Jesus says, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Now, dear congregation, there are some differences when Jesus says, I am coming. For instance, we have to say that when Jesus says in verse 5, chapter 2, and verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 3, So to the church at Ephesus and the church at Pergamum and the church at Sardis, that when Jesus says, I will come to you, he is simply referring to coming to them in judgment. 
If you don't sort yourself out, I'm coming to judge you. So to bring judgment upon those churches if they do not repent. But notice in verse 25, chapter 2, and verse 11 of chapter 3, the coming of Jesus is predicated by the phrase, hold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have. So, I'm, Jesus says to some churches, I'm coming, and I'm coming in judgment upon you. But then to these other churches, He says, I want you to hold fast what you have. And therefore, I think that's a reference to the final, the future, second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why are there these differences? I think I can tell you that from the resurrection of Jesus until the second coming of our Lord Jesus in this church age, that there are churches that are unfaithful to God, and Jesus says, I will come if you don't repent. I will come in judgment, a spiritual judgment upon you. And then, of course, he speaks about, I'm coming on that final day, when he comes at his second coming. His second coming is visible. We know that from chapter 1, verse 7. I'm coming with the clouds, every eye will see me. He, and this, of course, is simply the fulfilling, remember, of 1 Thessalonians 4, when the dead in Christ rise first, we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them, and so shall we always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, a word to the church, but 1 Thessalonians 5, a word to the world, to the unbelieving world, with, that He is going to come and bring judgment upon them. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction is going to come upon them. Right? So, when Jesus comes at His second coming, He comes, 1 Thessalonians 4, to save His people. He comes, 1 Thessalonians 5, to bring judgment upon the unbelieving world and upon sinners. And these other comings that you read about here in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that if you will not repent, the church, I will come among you, are temporal comings, invisible comings, spiritual comings in nature that require repentance. But what about a faithful church today? What should a faithful church today do? Jesus says one thing, hold fast what you have. Hold fast. What does he mean? Stand your ground. Be strong in the same course. Why? Because I'm the victor. I'm the king. You're faithful to me. I'm coming for you. I'm coming to save you. Don't flag. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Don't yield for a moment, an inch of ground, to the serpent. Stand firm. Satan is already trampled down, is he not? And so these words come. Now we read this morning responsively, and I want you to go with me to Revelation 19. <clears throat> Revelation 19, <coughs> verses 11 onwards. So John says, I saw heaven opened, verse 11. And behold, right, you all know what that word means now, right? And behold, a white horse. Pay attention to the white horse. The one sitting on it. Pay attention to the one sitting on the white horse. is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire. This is chapter 1, right? And his head, on his head are many diadems. 
And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. For what purpose? To strike down the nations. So what happens when this Lord Jesus Christ comes on a white horse, He who is faithful and true, what happens? It says He will come to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. It's just another phrase of judgment on His robe, on His thigh. Can He do it? Yes. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men. Notice that phrase, the flesh of all men, free, slave, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse, and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Now, I believe without question this is the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, the beast, of course, exists in the first century, and the beast exists throughout time. There's no question about that. But here, judgment has come, or destruction. Let me put it that way. Not just destruction of the beast and the false prophet, but all the nations are struck down. All the kings of the earth are struck down and judged by the one who is faithful and who is true. So, you go to chapter 20 now. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, behold, uh, sorry, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. And then if you go down, verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, sorry, from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I have just one question. How can there be nations in chapter 20 that Satan will come out to deceive when all the nations in chapter 19 are destroyed? How is it possible? Well, it's not possible. 
It's not possible. What we tend to do is we tend to read consecutively or chronologically chapter 19, chapter 20, and so we go, we progress. But what John is doing here or giving to us here is not something that is consecutive, but something that is concurrent. So that we are reading the same event, the destruction of the nations, chapter 19, the destruction of the nations in chapter 20. When does that happen? When Jesus comes. And so in between, what do you have? You have this thousand years. And those thousand years, if they are concluded by the destruction of the nation, when Jesus comes, when Satan supposedly, who is bound during this church age, is released for a little while to deceive the nations at the end, when, when Jesus comes, then we discover that those thousand years are said to be operating right now in heaven. And by dear congregation, if you read from verse 4 all the way through verse 6, there's not one word in there about a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. It's a thousand-year reign of Jesus in heaven. And He's coming from heaven to bring judgment upon the nations. And so, this, of course, the great war of chapter 19 is the great war of chapter 16. And these are just concurrent events that John records from a different perspective at different times. So, what must I do? What must you do? Right? Hold fast, right? Or to put it another way, be steadfast as a Christian. Stay the course. Keep the faith. Don't give up. Be steadfast. Not only number one, be steadfast, but number two, be waiting Waiting, prepared, and ready. You don't know when the Lord's coming. But what you do know is that He is coming. And He says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming when you don't expect me. So, thirdly, be looking. So be steadfast, be waiting, be looking. Looking with expectancy. Looking with anticipation. Because Jesus is coming. And who's He coming for? He's coming for us. He's coming for His bride. He's coming for His people. He's coming as our King. He's coming as our Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you're coming for me. Isn't that why John says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come for me. Is this how you see Jesus coming for you? Because I know tomorrow you go back out in the world. And you might not give a single thought to Jesus coming because you got work. You got stuff to do. But listen, in the midst of your work, you need to learn how to be expectant. You need to be prepared for when Jesus might come because He may come tomorrow. He may come today. He certainly is coming for His people. And what's He going to do when He gathers us to Himself? He's going to transform us to be just like Him. That's a hope we have, isn't it? That's resurrection hope. That's change when Jesus comes. And we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We shall be like Him and we shall be with Him forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word which is so clear and instructive for us Little words mean so much. We look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ when He shall come. Help us to think about the coming of Jesus. 
Help us to be faithful. Help us to be steadfast. Help us to hold on to the truth and not let go. And to repent. Because unless we repent, you come among us in judgment. So Father, thank you for these words from our Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. To strengthen these seven churches and to strengthen us because here we are still bearing witness as your lampstands 2,000 years later. Help us to be faithful because you, are, you, Lord Jesus, are faithful and true. Thank you that you are the Word of God, the eternal Logos who came and dwelt among us and who shall come again for us in great glory and power. Thank you for your Word, Father. So raise up an expectancy in our hearts and minds. Help us to lift up our eyes and look unto the hills from whence does our help come. Our help comes from the Lord. So we praise you and we thank you that Jesus is coming again and coming for his people. Thank you for the glory of Christ. Thank you for the sovereignty of Christ. We submit this morning to King Jesus, the coming Lord, and ask that you would ready us and prepare us for when he does come. To him alone be all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.